Your company's future success demands agile, flexible, and resilient operations. I'm your host, Daphne Luchtenberg, and you're listening to McKinsey Talks Operations, a podcast where the world's C-suite leaders and McKinsey experts cut through the noise and uncover how to create a new operational reality. When people began working from home back in 2020 at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, there were fears that productivity would be lost. Instead, many executives were surprised to discover how quickly their organizations could adapt to a fully virtual environment, and many employees believed and reported that their personal productivity increased. Embedding new ways of working comes with a new set of challenges, with decisions to be made about real estate footprint, shared service centers, organizational structure, leadership behavior, and the investment in digitization. I'm joined today by three McKinsey colleagues who will help us understand the challenges and the opportunities arising. Naomi Hudson and Martin Rosendahl are partners in the operations practice, and Phil Kirshner is a senior expert sitting at the intersection of McKinsey's people and organizational performance and real estate practices. Welcome to you all. Naomi and Martin, I'd like to ask you both to open up our discussion today. When people began working from home, companies were concerned about a loss in productivity. In fact, many companies were surprised that businesses didn't stall altogether. Yet the debate on whether or not companies have become more productive continues. To help us get to the bottom of it, can you help us set the context and tell us what's behind the question of productivity in today's landscape? Martin, you first. Thank you, Daphne. No, this is really a great question and one of intense debate in the executive suite. So when we survey organizations and employees about their level of productivity, the response is very clear. At large, people feel they have been able to be more productive uh, during the last couple of years during the pandemic. Uh, Clearly, it's taken out things like travel time and those type of activities. But at large, people do feel, even with that, they are more productive. Now, the interesting part is that when you ask executives, and specifically behind closed doors, they have a more nuanced picture. They are happy with their organization's ability to be resilient during the pandemic at large. But they do also challenge the long-term productivity of the current situation. And I've even been in the room with a few executives that behind closed doors mentioned that they are very keen to get their employees back to the office and they don't feel at all comfortable with the current situation and believe that there will be clearly be a lack of productivity, but maybe also more importantly over time, a challenge on the culture and the collaboration, specifically cross collaboration between different functions. And I was just going to say that is becoming even more acute, right? So it's not just about going back to the same as before, but it's against the challenging backdrop of inflation, labor shortages, um, an impending um, recession potentially. So CXOs must really be thinking about how do they get to the next way of driving productivity? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So this has really uh, accelerated over the last six months. So most organizations we work with right now are clearly feeling a sort of a perfect storm. One, of course, with inflation. Second, you know, potential recession. Third, geopolitical consequences on their operating model and their markets. And fourth, 
the significant attrition and the talent shortages that many organizations are facing today. All of those things really come together in a big push for additional productivity. They want to think beyond the traditional levers of of productivity and really think about how can I build an organization that is really faster, better, and simpler. So this means really cutting time on core processes through digital automation technology, improving employee experience, and of course, also driving productivity. And Naomi, what are we seeing um, in terms of our survey responses? You know, in COVID, we saw Smart Services a great big kind of focus on cost, absolutely kind of cost and, and keeping the business kind of running and stripping it down. I think executives were surprised that the businesses kind of, you know, di- didn't just kind of keep ticking over. In some cases, they thrive, depending on which sectors you were in. Our latest survey showed November that there was a pivot to growth. Suddenly, you're out of COVID and there was focus on growth. And I think the trends that you're kind of talking about in terms of shortage of labour, inflation, Ukraine, have now kind of pivoted back. So I suspect what we're going to see in the next survey is a pivot both on, you know, how how does CXOs kind of push growth whilst maintaining this kind of tight control on productivity and cost? So how do they juggle both levers at the same time? Yeah. Fascinating. Phil, I'm going to bring you in here as our people in place expert and ask you more about the challenges of sustaining this kind of remote or flexible working model that we've all kind of come to love a little bit. We've seen high profile examples of new collaboration tools, mandates for days in the office, day to day recommendations to improve corporate culture and employee well-being. Are we seeing these things working? What other tactics would you recommend companies start to consider? Yeah, thank you. And, and really appreciate being here uh, to add this perspective and, and don't often get a chance to uh, to bring it in the context of sort of operations and general performance improvement, uh, such as, as Martin and Naomi have been thinking about. As we've all seen, obviously, the day-to-day tactics, uh, although it's been two years now, are working. Um, as Martin said, the, our, our companies at large have not substantially suffered by a sudden shift to remote and flexible working model but really the hard work is is ahead in order to capitalize on, on what we believe is a once in a generation opportunity uh, to rethink the future of, of work and workplace uh, and the workforce for our clients. On the productivity point, uh, Martin hit the nail on the head. We removed a lot of friction in our days by shifting to remote. Uh, we don't have to commute. We don't have to move from meeting room A to meeting room B. And, and that leads to the kinds of answers that we see in surveys. When you ask someone, does your current workplace, which happens to be your home for many of us, enable you to work productively? The answer is resoundingly yes. And that point's really important. I find myself doing a lot of history lessons with clients that uh, we feel more productive at home, not just because of the removal of barriers, but also because many of our offices weren't performing that well before and not really accounting for the increasingly diverse sort of work patterns and, and styles. And similarly, I'm getting asked more and more about how do I measure productivity in this current state when we are remote by managers who, when pressed, couldn't have done it before. They assumed that people were productive because they saw them, uh, but did not always necessarily appreciate the amount of time that they didn't see them. And 
from the limited data we have now on truly measurable productivity outcomes before and after the pandemic, what's clear is that it is the coordination costs that are making things difficult. That is, we, we moved very quickly into a remote context and are largely still trying to operate as if we are all together. That contributes to the sort of Zoom fatigue of wanting to schedule calls all the time because you can no longer just tap someone on the shoulder. So taking a cue from the companies that have been the most successful at running even fully virtual environments, so completely remote since long before the pandemic, the three behavioral changes that need to be made are around like truly shifting to visualization of work process, taking the need to, to be somewhere or with someone out of the equation to know how things are happening at a, at a team level, much less the organizational level. Second is a increased adoption of asynchronous communications. So really taking a hard look at the the volume of meetings that we have, which are both contributing to burnout and well-being issues, but also physically prohibiting us from moving between two places in this world, from our home to the office or from our home to some other kind of workplace. And then finally, embracing really a, a documentarian culture. Uh, it, is, it is counterintuitive historically, but you have to write everything down. It has to be easy to, to understand how the organization works at the simplest level in a self-service manner as you're being onboarded remotely or, or have staff coming and going more frequently due to kind of contract and freelance models. So um, those are the three points that I, I'd probably offer most commonly to sustain the productivity point and on employee connection because we know there is some weakness the longer we are apart really encouraging leaders to focus on the moments that matter and the purpose of the office and the places that we're we're encouraging our employees to go and avoid the you know very easy desire to want to mandate that people be in a particular place at a particular time which we're finding runs afoul a little of of what we'd like to hear from our employers especially because we weren't being told to be in the office before that's right. So interesting, isn't it? And I'd like to dig into that a little bit more. Martin, it's clear that it's about place, but it's really about people, isn't it? And companies are, are having to think about how to do the same, if not more, with fewer people. With that as the backdrop, that's really important as part of the dialogue on SGNA functions, isn't it? What would you have to say about that? Yeah, that's exactly right. And uh, I think, you know, one of the uh, organizations I work with right now, their CEO framed it more actually in the spirit of growth enablement. So it's even sort of do more with same, right? Uh, and and his view was that they will need all of their uh, employees maybe slightly doing different things or significantly doing different things, but this is really right now stopping them from growing. And organizations are doing five things to really drive this. One, they are taking much more of an end-to-end process view. So they're trying to shift from these traditional functional silos to really look much more across their core end-to-end processes. And even thinking about what what are my sort of 10 most important enterprise processes and where do I have the biggest pain points and where do I see the biggest value? Secondly, they really try to automate everything that is possible. What we've learned over the last couple of years when, five, ten years when we saw the promise of automation but struggled to capture it, I think now we have uh, kept up now and we're able to really much more drive the full impact of automation. 
Thirdly, we're trying to be more intelligent. So this is really taking uh, the advantage of all the data we have to drive more intelligence, insight generation, and advice for us. Fourth, looking across on our partners. And this is really a big shift where, you know, the concept of outsourcing has been there for a long time, but sort of the next level here to work much more in an ecosystem of partners. So maybe I can't hire even some very strategic skills. And maybe as an organization, I need to accept that my absolute best data scientists, they are very happy to sit on a beach in Bali and work on some core algorithms for me. And I just need to have now a way in the organization to drive that. And the fifth area is really about implementing some more agile operating models. So again, to support working more on the core important business issues and in a much more collaborative, cross-functional manner. Thanks, Martin. That's great. So, Phil, coming back to you, so if there are these changes in the way we work and how we access the skills we need, what does that mean for our real estate footprint? Short version is it, it, it is getting smaller, which saying nothing of the future of, of work over time, we, we believe is a good thing is real estate actually is responsible for uh, most reports say about 40% of, of global greenhouse gas emissions. So on the whole, it's a good thing. But uh, again, back to the history lesson, most offices uh, prior to COVID had somewhere between 10 and 20% sort of traditional vacancy, which is to say like desks without names on them, and maybe 20% or more of the desks with the names on them uh, empty on a given day because of staff who were out for a variety of reasons, being with clients, being sick, on vacation, on maternity leave, you name it. But we were never in 100% of the time before. And that led to uh, some companies exploring like rather large scale uh, sharing programs, desk sharing programs in the office, tens of thousands of people uh, with companies taking advantage of that kind of 20, 30, 40% capacity increase from exploring mobility before. And I do think they have a little bit of a leg up now uh, on companies who hadn't really thought about different ways of occupying the office and are now having to deal with that reality, both with uh, the increased demand for working remotely. But we do see it, it is common to have somewhere in the 20 or 30% <clears throat> portfolio reduction plan. But the most progressive client that I'm working with at the moment, because of a deep integration of their sort of future real estate, but also future ways of working and collaborating under the same executive program, going you know, seamlessly from how should we redesign our meeting rooms to what kind of even cameras and, and collaboration tools should we incorporate to all the way of like a full review of how their sellers sell as a business process, independent of space. When a company is able to integrate all three of those kind of streams holistically under the employee and client experience, they're on track to kind of exceed 60%, almost 70% portfolio reduction within the next two to three years. And as a final point, the, the SG&A survey that was mentioned earlier in the most recent iteration on the questions around remote and flexible work, one of the results that jumped off the page to me is that when asked, you know, what kind of benefits are you providing to your employees to enable flexible work? The number one answer was actually access to flexible workspaces such as co-working sites. So something that is neither the home nor the office. 
And I believe this supports the fact that there has been an absolute explosion of these so-called third places uh, since the pandemic. And just because someone doesn't want to make the commute all the way to you know, the office traditionally doesn't mean that they want to be stuck at home alone. So I think we will see, you know, as the sort of central business districts over time can contract and our employers uh, need less space in the, the office sort of traditionally, we will see like an exhale out to closer to where we live. Yeah, I love that. So actually, we're really going to see as we go back, just different ways of working each day, we might be in a different place with a different team. And the footprints have to adapt to that. I wanted to kind of talk a little bit more then about the tools that we'll be using for us all to become more productive. And Naomi, if I could come back to you, We've talked a lot about accelerated digitization that enables new ways of working, both for SGNA functions and others. But it seems that many companies are still not really capturing the full value of the investment they have made. Can productivity really come from tech enablement alone? You know, if I if I look at it from a CFO point of view, there's almost a bit of how hard does your money work? And then how well does your money work? And if I look at the, you know, how hard does your money work? We talked about percentage of SGNA as a percentage of rev, and we saw big changes over COVID. We're seeing a lot of those reverse, and we're seeing how do you fund that doubling of tech investment over the next two, three, four years um, from some of the other areas. And that has to come through some of the, the different ways of working that we've all talked about. But it's got to come, I think, from, you know, standardisation and simplification. You know, we've all got to kind of embrace that. It's no coincidence that, you know, the companies that are in the quartile one, like the very best companies, cross-sector, tend to have homogeneous processes, simple one ways of doing things, whether that's on a national basis, regional basis, global basis. Yes, yeah, similarly, you know, we have to embrace different operating models the swing towards shared service centres in COVID doesn't look to be abating. So how can you do more of your functions, more of your processes in a different operating model, whether it's, you know, um, a hybrid, uh, a captive or an actual shared service centre? Again, the top 30% of companies have seven or more different functions in shared service centres. So, so let's look about how we do things differently not just kind of the people elements. And then you layer on the tech elements, be it kind of, you know, we are all extremely used to doing our banking online. You know, I can't remember the last time I went into a branch, but we self-serve. So how do employees self-serve? You know, how do I add my personnel data? How do I update my benefit selections? How do I get my learning and development? You know, similarly, you know, how do customers do that? And how do suppliers do that? In two years, it's accelerated a whole different mindset change of, you know, it can be done, all extremely used to kind of doing things, uh, and it's just kind of forced that pace. Um, And that's the how hard bit. If I think how well, this is the tricky bit, I think. You know, so how can you, or how do companies measure, you know, satisfaction? How how pleased am I that I can, you know, self-serve? Is, is that easy for me to do it? Do I get a confirmation that I've changed my benefits selection, et cetera, et cetera? So the softer kind of qualitative side comes in. So I think there's both hard and soft levers in there. 
that need to be taken into into account and managed by CXOs as they manage their business effectively. And Naomi, do you think that the implementation of those self-serve tools has been done well or perhaps clients where it's not gone so well? The last survey, November 2021, showed no, that overwhelmingly it was only about 40% of companies that thought that they had got tech investment implemented well effectively. And that's kind of a stark reminder of, of leakage of business value. And I think the three biggest things that they found or, or the three biggest differentiators were, you know, so, so understanding the direct sources of, of where the value was, what, what's driving the business value and putting your digital investments behind that so, so that you can kind of directly kind of draw a line between them. The second variable was constantly maintaining the IT alignment to the business Visibility on investments, stopping all those pet projects, visibility in terms of, you know, cost, value, benefits, effectively. And then having a vision, that robust roadmap over, you know, one to three year journey. But one to three years in, you know, given what we've just been through seems a long time. So how do you constantly refresh, maintain it and keep it um, relevant for today when we see sentiment changing and, you know, in, in a matter of months, so how do you keep up with a rapidly changing volatile environment? Yeah, that's interesting, Naomi. And, and Martin, I kind of wanted to bring you back in. When we talk about digitization and what technologies to use, and as Naomi mentioned, look first to where the core value is and then look at what technologies can really help you optimize that, your processes there. But what advice do you have for organizations that are identifying and then rolling out technologies and presumably need to keep a finger on the pulse of the latest developments in, um, in technologies as well to ensure that they are still continue to be at the leading edge? There are still so many organizations that want to solve and, and, and close this opportunity by further tech investment. I mean, over the last couple of years, I don't think any of my clients have had a lack of technologies, tools, cloud platforms, analytics platforms, data initiatives, that typically there. What, what I try to look at are basically three questions. Number one, do we know where the value sits? Back to Naomi's point, are we really clear? What are the big sources of value? Where are they? How do we prioritize? Second, do we have the right talent? Again, this can be internal, external, very likely a mix. But do we have the right talent? Do we even know what talent we need to drive impact through technology? And then thirdly, is the foundation in place? And foundation comes in a few different ways, right? It comes from data. It comes from cyber. It comes from processes. So is that foundation in place? And can I make sure there are no sort of blockers to really capturing the value? Mm -hmm. Got it. Quite complicated then to get right, <laughs> would you not say, Martin? You know, you could look at it from many angles, but <laughs> I mean, looking at the, the statistics that Naomi was mentioning, I mean, yes, it can feel a little bit sobering. That said, these are not unreasonable claims, right? If you would big a new manufacturing plant or if you would enter into a new market, you would ask those questions. What is the value? Do I have the right talent? is the basic foundations in place. It's uh, almost applying sound business judgment 
to driving improvements through tech as we've done through so many years in successful business on other portfolio decisions. This is all so fascinating. I just want to comment on the point of do we know where the value is? It's very much aligned with this idea of, of understanding the purpose of the places that we ask our employees to come into and can we really articulate through you know testing and, and learning if we weren't doing it before like what creates opportunity and measurable value when we are doing something at the same time together and naomi's earlier point on consumer behavior i'm so inspired by that because we might switch banks in our personal lives because we think someone's self-service or digital portal is better than the competition and the friction to switch is rather low um, we didn't previously have the luxury of making a call it retail-oriented decision about the place that we worked because we largely didn't have a choice. We went because we had to. And the friction, the tension that we're feeling in employees not necessarily wanting to be in or in a place where, where someone is trying to tell them to be is simply that they you know, have a better experience somewhere else and are voting with their feet. So we have to apply the same scrutiny on our, our sort of employee experience and feedback and learning as we would for customers, taking all that energy and pointing it internally. Thanks, Phil. Martin. I couldn't agree more, Phil. And just to, to build upon your point, once he was speaking to last month, he really sees it as one of his absolute signature moves to radically improve the experience of his employees. He literally feels that the current way of working, it's too hard. It's too complex. Uh, and he shared a number of, I think, quite stark <laughs> examples. But I think this is not the one-off. This is something that is very clear now. And, you know, having had the experience over the last two years where we ordered food to home, we, we, we fixed everything while we were sort of locked into our houses, um, employees will just not accept anymore a poor working experience. Yeah, fascinating. I am going to have to come bring this conversation to a close, although I'm sure that all of us could spend another hour or so just debating some of the things that need to change and will change. Before we finish, I wanted to just a quick fire question to each of you. If you had to give one piece of advice, Martin, Naomi, Phil, to a leader who's thinking about their SG&A spend and thinking about what are some of the priorities moving forward, what would that be? And Phil, let me start with you. Uh, generally, I would say my advice, I, I think the future of work is very much virtual first by intent, but not placeless. And in specific to SG&A, I mentioned earlier the large scale sort of sharing and mobility programs meant to uh, address an increasingly diverse number of kind of workplace patterns and preferences. Uh, honestly, most of them were being applied to SG&A functions first, as opposed to kind of core industrial or trading or the so-called like business functions. So there is significant opportunity if you listen to your employees about what they want to, to really transform the way work happens. Thanks, Phil. Naomi. I think I'll take a different slant from Phil. Just ground yourself in the numbers, I think. So... How do you understand really down at that kind of forensic level your SG&A? Um, what are you spending on? Where are you spending it? How much are you spending? What are you buying? Who's buying, et cetera, et cetera. And I walk into so many CFOs' offices where they can't answer the simple question of, of you know, what are they spending, let, let alone, therefore, you know, is it good value? And rip up the rule book, I think, because 
you probably need to kind of you know reassess where you're spending once you've got your kind of arms around your your cost base then do that forensic analysis of do you think it's the right spend good value coupled with the employee experience etc etc so start from a clean base I think Daphne would be my bit because because we ripped up the rule book we really did so ripping up the rule book and taking a forensic look at spending sounds very much like an opportunity to use some zero-based productivity principles. I'd love to dig into that deeper in a further episode. Martin, what would you add? I think we need to think about holistic impact here. When we talk SGNA, we need to think about, yes, it is about the financials, right? So no one is, is, is saying no to that. But equally important is, you know, what does this mean for my people? What does it mean for my, my footprint for society? How do I make sure now uh, in a talent shortage that I take a societal view as well and think about how I upskill, cross-skill my people? So uh, I would really try to encourage when thinking about the SGNA, for so many years, it's been all about the cost levels. I think this is really the opportunity to think more holistically about impact. Point taken, Martin. I'm very well said. Phil, Naomi, Martin, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been just a great discussion and this is such a fascinating time where I might invite you all back in six or eight months time to see what really happened and how, um, how the future of work is going to take shape. You've been listening to McKinsey Talks Operations with me, Daphne Luchtenberg. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'll be back with a brand new episode in a couple of weeks.